This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. can God, who's loving, send people to hell? You know, it just seems wrong. It, it seems all out of kilter. It feels like you're really asking the question, is God really good? When you're asking that question. Is God really loving? Is God really fair? It seems like that to send people to eternal punishment for comparatively minor false steps, like you didn't become a Christian, I'm not saying that's not an important step, but it does feel like a massive thing, doesn't it? It feels like, God, are you really that so heavy on people that you're just going to send them to hell? What about people that never knew Jesus, what, you know, had a chance? What about all that? It just feels like totally outrageous, you know, and you get these sermons, don't you, that say, well, if you do one thing wrong, you're going to burn in the fires of hell forever. And you say, what, I, you know, I stole some sweets once from my sister or whatever, you know, and that is it. And it feels totally out of shape, doesn't it? The whole thing of what God uh, would do for a small thing turns out of shape. And now what I'm going to do today is you're going to both love it and, lo- and hate it. But then some of you can think, he's become a liberal. And some of you are going to think, no, no, no. He's not become a liberal. He's too hard. And, and so I'm not trying to find a nice middle way. You are going to find that it's challenging. And I would say, if you try and answer the question, is God good, while thinking about a deep, cavernous dungeon with blazing flames and sort of instruments of torture around the dungeon and people kind of people chained and and being whipped and there's a kind of satan like whoa yeah but actually sometimes people think yeah god's there and he's like saying whip them come on yes barbecue them some more yes that's what we want isn't it you know and you can feel like whoa is that god you know, and you can, you can see God in the midst of the flames. And the poor little sinners are saying, Oh, but, but God, I will be good. I promise to love you. And he says, Your time's up. You had your time in hell, on earth. And now you're going to burn forever. And you think, Whoa! I don't believe in that God. So I've got a problem. So either I've got a wrong view of hell, or I've got a wrong view of God. Because you can't have both. Yeah? You're all struggling, but that's good, because it's meant to make you think. You cannot answer the question, is God loving, and have a Dante's Inferno medieval view of a dungeon torture chamber where God's rubbing his hands and saying, got him now. You can't have that. You can't have the cross... And Dante's Inferno, Dante was a, a kind of medieval writer wrote about, about uh, the, the skin being flayed off people's bodies as they're whipped in hell and the fires consuming them, worms eating them up. And I think you can't have that. You can't have that and the cross. 
Oh, certainly, maybe you can, but we can work on it. But there's some work to be done. Would you agree? Have I created some tension for you? Good. That was the point of that little bit then. So I think that actually, behind God, there's not this, here's lovely Jesus, and behind him is his father, who's a sadistic torturer, and he's saying, Dad, just shut up and get back in there. They'll never believe if you come and show your ugly face. Actually, maybe we've got something mixed up here. Now, let me just say what I'm not going to do and what I am going to do. I'm not going to take every verse, every passage on hell, and work through it exegetically so it answers the questions. But I will, I'm trying to give you a big framework that helps you answer some of the other stuff. Okay? So I'm not going to take every little passage about hell and, and say, well, what does that mean? How does that fit into the context? What I'm going to try and do is give you the big picture. So what I feel is always, the th- when, when you're looking at these things, when you're looking at a big idea, the best way to find that how it fits is to see how does this idea, how does this reality, I do believe in hell, how does this reality fit into God's big story? That's the best place to come at it. So, so let's, let's pray. Uh, we're going to need some, um, some work, and I'm going to need the Spirit of God to help me. Father, we thank you that you're a good God. Lord, my experience shows me you are good, you are good, and your love endures forever. The cross shows me that. Jesus shows me that. So, Lord, I just pray with these strange ideas of hell battling away in our head. The, the doctrine that, that we want to put away in the cupboard and say, oh, we just let's not talk about that because it makes you look bad. I pray, Lord, you bring it out into the open. Help us to look at it and to see the truth afresh. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the, the, the big story always starts in Genesis 1.1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness. Those are the words empty and darkness will appear again later. But interestingly, the words heaven and earth go together. Heaven and earth. If you go on Google search, sorry, not Google search, I use Bible Gateway or Bible Hub. If you put the words heaven and earth in, they come up together 195 times in the Bible, heaven and earth. How many times do you think if you put heaven and hell in, the, in that search come up? None. So we've got this idea that heaven, the place where God dwells, has got a counterpart, an opposite, an equal and opposite, a yin and yang, a counterpart called hell. And we live on earth, and basically there's two, we're going to go to either heaven or hell. That's how we see it, isn't it? That's how we've been told. You live here on earth, which is nothing to do with the spiritual realm, and you either go to heaven or to hell. Okay, And that's how we see it. But actually, the Bible never puts heaven and hell together as, its, as counterparts. It, their actual counterparts are heaven and earth. Heaven and earth appear together. They're the co-equal places. Now think about the early story. If you know the early story of Genesis, what happens in Genesis is, is God walks on the earth. He walks with humanity. Humanity is made from the dust of the earth, and it walks with the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. There's a sense where heaven and earth 
are in unity. Heaven and earth are together. There's a sense where God says, we pray, don't we, because it doesn't happen now, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There was a time at the beginning where heaven and earth were together. God's will was done on earth as it was in heaven. Heaven and earth were were brought together. It wasn't that God was far away in his heaven and we were down here on our earth. Heaven and earth were together. God made the heavens and the earth and God walked with us. He even wanted to marry us, and we've talked about this many times, marry us, the people of dust, to the man Jesus from heaven, the man from heaven. There was going to be the ultimate uniting of heaven and earth. But in this thing, in this this joining of heaven and earth, there's actually no mention. In the original uh, blueprint for creation, in the original design for, for, for the cosmos, there's no place for hell. Hell was not created. God did not originally start, I'll make the earth and I'll make a place called heaven for the good people and I'll make a place called hell for the bad people. He made a place called heaven and he joined it with earth for all people to live on. Hell was not even in his thinking. He says that later on. So we know that that's not what we've got though, isn't it? Has everyone tracking with me so far? Heaven and earth. Not heaven and hell. Hell's a outsider into this system. Let's look at that in a moment. What's happened is that that creation has been cracked and torn by sin. Adam, our first representative, the first representative human, uh, it was turned by the serpent's cunning, uh, says Paul, away from pure devotion to Jesus and reached out and grasped the, the forbidden fruit, reached out and grasped autonomy. It made that choice. It says, I want a world without... God. Um, okay, I want a world without God. That, that's the choice. It says, you will be like God. In other words, I'll be God, will be God, Adam and Eve will be God, humanity will be God, and we don't want God in the system. So what happened is, the, the whole system was fractured. Sin and death enter the story like invasive intrusion, intruders onto God's earth. Suddenly, where there was no death, death comes. Where there was no separation between God and man, suddenly there's separation. In fact, humanity go and hide away because we don't want to be in the presence of God. The presence of God is embarrassing, it's shameful, it's difficult, it it tempts us, but God comes looking for us. But what happens is that heaven and hell, heaven and earth, so I did it then, heaven and earth are torn apart because hell comes in as this kind of invader. And what happens? is that, that when, when God says, that because of what you've done, you're going to be exiled from the garden. You're going to be put outside the garden. You're going to be outside God's pleasant presence. And he puts an angel with a flaming sword. So already at the beginning, you've got death, you've got separation, you've got outside of God's goodness, and you've got an angel with a flaming sword saying, you can't come in. Adam's sin removes all humanity from the love and light and life that sustains and supports us. We're like a plant. If you took a plant and you took it away from the sun, it would wither. And that's what's the human condition 
Uh, sin, death, and hell have entered the story as dark and empty, lifeless, non-elements of creation. L- let me explain what I mean by non-elements. Is there such a thing as darkness? Is it a thing? No, it's a non-thing, isn't it? Do you know what I'm saying? It's a non-thing. Light is the thing. Darkness is the absence of the thing. So, so, so sin and death and darkness and emptiness become these elements of non-creation that try to take creation back into the darkness it came from. Remember, it was darkness over the whole world. Darkness over the, over, over the cosmos. And, and it's almost like that sin and death and hell wants to come and take God's goodness and drag humanity and sin drag us to the grave, Hades, which is what's called in the Old Testament, and then it drag us so that, that we disappear. It's what sin wants to do. It comes in as this kind of invasive force. It wants to take us back. Decreation eats away at creation. Do you understand what I mean by decreation? It's like antimatter. It's kind of going to destroy everything good. The power of hell is therefore active in the world. It's coming like a, like a computer virus that's not being quarantined, that's actually start spread through the system. This is what it says in Hosea. Could have been written in last week's Times, couldn't it? There is no faithfulness. Sang about it. No love. No acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They, that's us. Break all bounds and bloodshed. Follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The earth is dry. You know, I'm a... You know, I'm thinking, should I vote green? But actually, the, the, the ultimate green party is, is, the, is God's people. We should love the earth, but yet sin has brought messed up the creation. But more than that, it's brought a wasting away from us, for us. It's almost like decreation is eating away at us. But who unleashed this force? Who unleashed this destructive, decreating, emptying darkness force? Who, who introduced it? Question. You can answer at this point. It's not the Sunday school answer, Andy. <laughs> it's not Jesus, no. Who is it? It's us. God did not unleash the power, destructive power of hell on earth. Who did? Adam and all of us. God doesn't sex traffic two two million young girls. We do. God doesn't create the killing fields of Cambodia. There's a picture there. We do. God didn't create the genocide in Rwanda and and the slaughter in Bosnia. God doesn't create the Nazi concentrate camp guards, does he? In fact, one of the things that was so shocking when they had the trials for the the, uh, Holocaust... Uh, that, that what happened is Jewish survivors were, were, would come to the trials uh, at Nuremberg and what would happen is they'd bring out a, a, a guard, a concentration camp commandant or guard and he would come forward and he would stand on the stand and what was shocking about that was not that there was some evil demonic monster but this guy was a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker this guy was an accountant, a banker he looked awfully like us Our thoughts and our words and our actions have set the spot, like the sparks have set the world ablaze. God's will is not done on earth as it should be, as it is in heaven. 
But God's not left it like that. Hey man, this is a good story, not a bad story. God's plan is to recreate all things. I've got a book actually. It's called uh, Skeletons in God's Cupboard. So if you want to read more about this, it's got a book I can recommend it to you. Skeletons in God's Cupboard. And he has a chapter heading that says, God's plan is to kick the hell out of earth. What does that mean? It either means he hates the earth and wants to... Yeah? Or he, wants, he hates hell and he wants to... Yeah? That is where we're going. God wants to take that destructive, lack of faithfulness, lack of love, broken world, and he wants to kick it out. God aims to make the, new, the earth new, to restore what's broken and make it whole again, to bring heaven and earth together again. If he's going to do that, he's got to remove the intruder, the destructive intruder. And the destructive intruders in the Bible are death, sin, and death. And the power of hell. Now, it's a bit like a cancer. If you think about sin and death and hell like this cancer, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know many families that are, are not touched in some way by, by cancer. PJ Smythe, who's going to uh, come and preach to us. He, he had cancer. And there's a thing about cancer that's kind of like this thing that feeds on the body. It feeds on the healthy body. And, 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 it, and it wants to grow and to take over and invade the body. And what happens to the body at the end? The body dies. And that's what sin is like. That's what sin has been introduced into this God's good, beautiful earth. He's introduced it. That's what sin has done when it's introduced into us. It's like this cancer that grows within us, that needs to be cut out, that needs to be removed and put outside. It's not that God has taken this cancer and said, I'm going to insert it into you if you're not good. Now, it's interesting that there's a... I think it's helpful here, the idea of outside is really helpful because obviously what happens is, is Adam and Eve are, are, are exiled. They, they don't want to be in God's presence. They hide from God's presence and therefore they end out outside the garden, east of Eden, it says. Now, interestingly, the nation of Israel is, a, is almost like a prototype of what God's going to do, his plan. This plan to remove the the cancer of sin, the surgery to remove cancer of sin. Now, it's interestingly, he sets up a kind of new picture. And and, and he sets up this picture, but he doesn't set a picture up of a tumor in a body. He sets up Jerusalem. Tracking with me so far? Heaven and earth are good. Hell and sin and death are coming like this invasive virus, this cancer that wants to destroy the body. And God's plan is to kick that cancer out, to kick that virus out, to quarantine it, to bin it, and destroy it forever. Now, interestingly, the way that he shows how, how this works in more detail is through Jerusalem. Uh, does anybody uh, know, does anyone do Hebrew? Does anyone know any Hebrew? Harold, I think, is nodding. You know a bit of Arabic. But, but it's interesting. What do, the Ar- what do the Arabs and the Jews say to each other when they greet? They say Salem, if they're Arab, and if they're Jewish, they say Shalom. Okay, Salem. What does that sound like? Jaru Salem. Ah, you haven't thought about that before, have you? Jerusalem means God's Shalom. 
Shalom is God's good earth gone right. It's God's good, beautiful earth. It's God's wonderful earth. It's, it's the place of human flourishing. It's the paradise of God. It's the, it's the place where we do the best we can do and God, all that we create to do and God's good world come. It's the original blueprint. So, so Jerusalem is meant to be like this little blueprint of God's shalom, God's goodness. Just like Eden was a little blueprint of God's goodness. Uh, Jerusalem was to be a place where God and humanity would be joined again, where God would dwell with man, where heaven and earth would be united again. They felt like in the temple, heaven touched earth. It's the holy place where heaven touched earth, where it before had been the plan for heaven, and earth, heaven to touch the whole of earth. Now it was this place in the middle of the temple. Uh, Jerusalem was to be this visual display of the shalom of God in the midst of a sin-soaked, death-decaying and hell-devastated world. Jerusalem was to be the city of God where the great king would cast outside the destructive, invasive forces of sin and death. Now outside the city of Jerusalem... So this idea of outside is really important. There was a valley called the Valley of Himnon. Uh, and often it was called G. Nimnon. It's actually in Greek that the, the way they pronounce that valley is Gehenna. So we've gone from Valley of Himnon through G. Nimnon to the G. Gehenna. Okay, you track him. Right, okay. <laughs> Andy, I know, uh, Vicky will explain it to you at home. Three or four times you'll get it. Okay. So this is interesting. Now this valley belonged to the sons of Himnon. And the valley was constantly in darkness, interestingly, because it's on the south side of the city. Uh, it, was, uh, um, it, it was overshadowed by the city. It's a valley. It was overshadowed by darkness. And it used to be the retreat of kings and artists. Sort of like this boho kind of place. But what happened is gradually the place degenerated into a place of pagan, sexualized idol worship. And eventually a place where the idolatrous Jews would come and sacrifice their children in the fire to the god Moloch. So this is this valley called Gehenna. And what used to happen is that the, 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 the men, uh, 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 I don't know if it was women, there presumably must have been women there, but men and women of the town would go out into the Valley of Himnon, into Gehenna, and have sex as a form of worship to the fertility god Moloch. But it actually got worse that they would take their children and burn them as a sacrifice to Moloch. Jeremiah writes about this place. It says, The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up detestable idols in the house, the city that bears my name and defiled it. They've built the high places or the high fireplaces in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something that did not even enter my mind. It's so awful what's going on in this valley that God hadn't even thought of it. Now, I'm not saying God he knows everything, but in that sense he's saying, this is detestable. It's something I couldn't conceive of that evil would go so far. So here we have not hell located in the ground, but hell located outside the city. 
It's not some deep, dark dungeon created by God to punish evil. It's a deep, dark valley outside the city created by us. It's in Gehenna that human hell is unleashed by human hands. The flames consume the children in the fire. Gehenna, the the, the guy whose book I read said this, Gehenna had become like a dirty motel outside the city where Israel would would hide and cheat on him with other lovers because we're meant to be love with God. And a dirty motel where paedophile rings would bring their children to abuse them and murder them. And this place becomes the picture of hell. We'll find it. Jesus does that. But, 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 but actually, it got worse. What happened is when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in, in 50, 597 BC, about 600 years before Jesus, they killed so many people that the bodies were stacked up in this valley of, Hem, of, of Hemnon, in this Gehenna. Stacked up bodies. And the walls of the city were torn down by the Babylonians and all the filth of that happened in Gehenna invaded the city. Watch 300 if you want a picture of the Babylonians. Don't if you want to stay pure. (laughs) The corpses were thrown into the valley of Hemnon. The city walls were torn down And the people, what happened to the people when the Babylonians invaded? They were taken to exile. Flames, darkness, stacked up bodies, exile. This is where sin takes us. God has a problem with this infinite valley, not because he just hates the things that go on with it, but because he loves the good world and us that its powers seek to destroy. If if, if sin and death and hell are not put outside the city, they're going to consume the shalom of the city. Sin wages war on God's shalom. Gehenna is not content outside the walls. It wants inside the city. Those who murdered their children in the fire came back to sleep in their beds with their pet, with the mother who bore them. The adulterous affairs that, that stayed outside the city wanted to claim Jerusalem's marriage beds. Hymnon's idols were set up in the temple. Sin's invading armies bring death into the city. They needed to build walls. So, so what does Naaman cry? Nehemiah, sorry, cries, doesn't it, that the walls of the city are broken down and its gates are in ruins. The city's taken over by sin and death. That's what happens. Sin enters the garden. Sin enters the city. Sin enters the earth. Sin brings hell. We bring it. We unleash it. It happens to Adam and Eve in the garden. It happens to Jews, Jews in Jerusalem. And it happens to us unless we put sin outside. Israel longs for a king that will bring God's blessing to Jerusalem. One who's going to protect the city. Who's going to build its walls and build its gates and cast evil outside. So then when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they're all cheering. He's going to cast the evil invader outside. By Jesus' time, the Valley of Hymnon had become a rubbish dump, perhaps. We don't know for certain. We know that it had been a place of idol worship, sexuality, 
and murder and slaughter, but there's a suggestion that they become the rubbish dump. And literally, that the rubbish of the city was taken out. And it suggested that this flames, although we've had flames because of the kids being burned in flames, that flames also burned there. Tim Keller says this, What then are the fire and darkness symbols of? They're vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God, when we're outside. Darkness refers to isolation, and the fire to disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favour and face of God, these words are shocking, we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. That's hell. So Jesus comes, doesn't he? And what does he say? He says lots about hell, and we haven't time to unpack loads. But he comes, and on the Sermon of the Mount, he says, if your, know, if your hand offends you, what does he say? Cut it off. Get rid of it. Get it outside. Because it's better for your hand to be cut off than the whole of your body. Why does he say that? Not because if you don't sort what you do with your hands, that God will say, I got you, I'm going to burn your body. Because it's an invasive, gangrenous virus that's going to take your body away. Cut it off. If your eye offends you, if you're struggling with lust and pornography and sexual sin, get it out. He says, your hands, cut them off. Your eyes, cut them out. Your mouth. If you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. It's going to take you over. Jesus says, cut it off. Cast it out. Exile it. Put it outside the city. Jesus is saying, take the rubbish of sin out of your life with the rest of the trash. Well, it deserves to be burned and it deserves to be eaten. But we've got this idea of the, the sadistic torture, haven't we? Who's, who's harsh and extreme. We say, cut off your hand. I'm going to burn you. No, this is the doctor who says, look, if you don't do something here, if we don't get a, if we don't get a, a tourniquet around this, it's going to take you down. It's not about primarily, hear this, I'm not a heretic, it's not primarily about punishment, it's about protection of God's good shalom, of God's good earth. Jesus' command was to cast sin out and contain it in Gehenna. But his ultimate plan was to take sin and death outside and destroy it in Gehenna. John, the apostle, of, the disciple of Jesus, when he's an old guy, he reflects this. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy. Oh, he's going to destroy. Destroy the work of the evil one. God is, Jesus is God's great king who's going to take sin outside the city and deal with it. Take it to death. Take it to hell. So what happens? Jesus, it says Peter, he who knew no sin became sin. The image of the cross is loads of image, but it's also an image of hell. Jesus was taken where? Outside the city. He was beaten with many blows. He's taken outside the city. Psalm 22 says, My heart has melted, burned away within me. That's what happens when you're crucified. 
when you're gasping for breath, the heart bursts. He's in torment and agony and thirst. There's a picture in, in Luke 16 where it says, I'm in torment and agony. I thirst, says this guy in death. It's a picture of death, not hell, but there's another story. And there's weeping. The women are weeping and there's wailing and the women of Jerusalem and wail, weep and wail. There's darkness. Anti-creation engulfs him. Emptiness of death grabs hold of him. There's ultimate separation and exile from his father as he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus doing about hell? He's going there himself. He's saying, I'm going to become sin. I'll take all your sin, though I've got no sin, and I'm going to take death outside the city, and I'm going to let it crush me. I'm going to go to hell. Theologian R.C. Sproul says of his forsaken cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is indeed the cry of the damned. To look at the cross is to see hell. Outside the city, in the darkness, he experiences a physical and spiritual torment of hell. But who's doing it? Yes, it was God's plan that Jesus would become sin and suffer. But who's banging in the nails? We are. Who's whipping him? We are. Who's mocking him and scoffing him and gnashing their teeth at him? We are. God does not unleash hell on humanity. Humanity unleashes hell on God. Three days after his death, though, Jesus rose from the grave. His resurrection sounded the death the defeat of the invasive, destructive, decomposing power of sin and death. That means everybody's going to live forever. Everyone's going to live forever. God does not choose to cast sinners outside hell. They choose a life without him. They say, I will not have him as my God. Tracking with me. Outside the city, Jesus has become... Hell, he suffers hell. It says, in the, it says he descended into hell and we think, oh, he went into that place of where Satan's in, in charge and that place of whipping and torment. No, he's on the cross. Experiencing hell, experiencing disintegration and agony and torment as he bears the sin of the world. So horrid was it that the father turns his face away. But the big story ends well for some. The big story ends with what? We go to Revelation. Where do we start? Not heaven and hell, but heaven and earth. The big story ends with heaven and earth. What happens is heaven comes down to earth. What's not going to happen is he's not going to say, okay, all you lot are going to go to hell, all you lot are going to go to heaven, and the, and the earth's going to be destroyed. No, heaven is going to come to earth. The presence of God is going to come to earth. The goodness of God is going to come to earth. The shalom is God is going to come to earth and he's going to drive out the powers of anti-creation, the powers of sin. This is what it says in Revelation. I've just chopped a few bits because we don't have time to read the whole chapter. Come, I'll show you the bride. Who's that? The church. The wife of the lamb. Who's that? Jesus. I'll come and show you the church. The wife of Jesus. The... Oh, the church is now somebody else. The holy city, Jerusalem, the shalom of God, coming down out of heaven from God. 
The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is its lamp. No darkness here. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings will come to its splendor. Its gates, if you read the Bible, it says its gates will never be shut. Its gates will never be shut, for there is no night. There's no darkness. They used to shut the gates at at night to keep the city safe. But there's no night here. This is a place of flourishing and goodness. There's no darkness, no sin. The gates are never shut. But nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what's shameful or deceitful, but only those names that are in, in the book of life. So let's finish here. So what's happening? The, 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 the city of light, the gates are always open. There's no darkness there. There's, there's, the, 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 the doors are open. Who comes, to the, who comes through these open gates? It says, the nations will come to its splendor. What is the characteristic of God? He throws the doors of his good earth, his good shalom open and says, come on, come on everybody, come, come, come. But yet, there's a funny contrast, and I'm almost done here. It says, nothing impure will enter it. Why not? Because there's something about human sin that says, I never want to be with him. I never want to be with him. What happens in, in uh, uh, you know, it should be in the Bible, shouldn't it? What you do in life echoes in eternity. And it's not because God is going to judge you and trip you up, but it's because the choice you make in this life. Do you want to live in God's good earth? Do you want to live in His shalom, His blessing, His favor, His light, His life that sustains you? Or do you want to be outside? Do you want to be outside? And what happens, I believe, is that they were who don't want to be with him are repelled by the presence of God. They say, I don't want to be with him. They still want to hide in their sin and they go outside to Gehenna. They're sent out. In fact, the worst thing that, that God can say to a person is, depart from me. He says, depart from me in the parables, you evil do. It's almost like you've chosen this, now go and have what you've chosen. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, it's 2 Thessalonians 1, nine. they will be punished with everlasting destruction Shut out from the presence of God. Being away from the presence of God is the worst thing that can happen to us, but yet that is what we choose. J.R. Packer, I really am done, two quotes. J.R. Packer says this, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell, that destructive, burning, disintegrating separation from the life of God appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose. Either we to be with God forever or without him forever. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. So the question about hell then is, who's created it? We have. Who's Who's chosen it? We have. Who's done everything he can to destroy it so we never face it by dying on the cross and and taking hell in his body so we never have to taste it 
God has. Let nobody say that God is unjust. Let nobody say that His goodness does not endure forever. But the truth is, we get what we want. God says, depart from me. His presence is a terror for me. Away from his light and life into the self-inflicted crushing darkness. Into the fire of disintegration. Away from the favour of God's beautiful face. There we literally, horrifically and endlessly fall apart. Hell is horrific. It's here on earth. It lasts into eternity. But actually, it's not the main story. The main story is, come, the gates are open. The gates are open. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes him should not perish, let me add, outside, but have eternal life inside. For God did not send his son into the world to point a wagging judgmental finger at the world but to take sin out of the world so we can live in glory. Good story, isn't it? Great story. He's so good. I want you to ask yourself that question that Jesus asked. Come to the feast. Come inside. Come and Share your life with me. The father goes out to the prodigal and says, come on in. But the older brother stands outside and will not come in. He chooses separation from his father. He'd rather have life without God that actually leads to death. So I want to ask you, wherever your spiritual journey are, if you've never said to Jesus, I'm in. Hide me in you. Hide me in your cross. Hide me when you die and take sin and death and hell. Hide me so that I don't have to take it. If you've never done that, you need to do that. Because the trajectory choice, the trajectory choice you make is the one that lasts into eternity. God reaches out his hands and says, I love you, come on. Come inside, the gates are open. But if you've come in and you know you're walking with Jesus and there's no hell for you to face, I just want us to understand the cross takes the sinful hand, the grasping hand, the lustful eye, the arrogant feet, the boastful tongue, and says, outside you go. And if we've got habits and patterns of sin, although the power of sin is broken by the cross, it still wants to eat you. It still wants inside your life, your marriage. It still wants inside your head. It wants to eat you and destroy you. We need to say, I'm done with that. Lord, I love it that your cross is the center of this brilliant truth. 
we know we're on the right track, Lord, when we say we've come to your cross. And we say, Lord, we survey it. Is that what you're playing, guys? Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> Lord, we know that when we survey it, we, it, it says the end to all our pride and pour contempt on it and say, ah, we'll cut it off and gone so that we can have you, the beautiful Saviour, the glorious one. Let's sing this and then I'm going to ask you if you want to respond to come forward. In fact, I'll do that while we're singing it. If you've never become a Christian, if you've never said amen, then I, I want you to respond. You can put your hand up, you can come out, you can tap your neighbour at the end, but I'd encourage you, come on out. And if you know that there's issues and challenges, then I know that's like saying, look, if you struggle with pornography, come stand here. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you've got issues and challenges with sin you want to be free of, then I want you to come forward. But I want you also to come forward if you're saying, I want to live in the ultimate goodness of God's shalom. Come here and pour it over my marriage, my life, in every situation, the goodness of God. So whatever, you know, basically, if, if you want to get prayed for, you come forward in the song and we'll pray. Tom will make sure that people get prayed with. So let's sing this, okay? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.